Welcome to the feminist history party you've been waiting for. This is Nevertheless, She Existed. This is the podcast about the women of history who are underappreciated, overlooked, or sometimes completely forgotten about. The stories you'll hear on this podcast are recorded live in New York City at Caveat, your favorite speakeasy that gets you a little smarter and a little drunker on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. On each episode, we invite a kick-ass comedian, professor, storyteller, former model, etc. to celebrate a lady from history who you should know about or know more about. A lady worth celebrating, which is all I want on my tombstone. I can make that happen. Uh, Hello, everyone. My name is Molly. And when I was younger, I thought something weird about my body was that the tops of my earlobes were way too long. And then it became a family joke. And now I'm an outcast. (laughs) That's what did it. Mm -hmm. My name is Kylie. And a weird thing that I used to think about my body is I thought that uh, if I didn't exercise the muscles of my inner thighs enough, that my kneecaps would shoot out. (laughs) What the side of fuck, Kylie? Who taught you that? No one. I just Uh, made it up. I love your weird brain. Because we need education about our own bodies. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even want to know what you thought about sex. Um, So, hello everyone. We are clearly coming in hot with our second episode, celebrating the reproductive rights advocates from history. That's right. This is once again, the Boss of Her Body series. And on this episode, we're going to be celebrating a lady who had the quirky idea that women's bodies are actually not naturally inferior. I know, wild, right? So throughout history, uh, garbage dudes have perpetuated the idea that women should be told what to do with their bodies because those bodies are broke, you know? And we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. The things men used to make up about women's bodies are truly wild. Wild. Yeah. From our wombs floating around our bodies to the belief that our uteruses would shoot out of our bodies if we went too fast. The idea that ladies are so fragile will break if we sneeze has been used to limit our ability to make our own decisions about our own lives. So what has changed this belief that women are fragile little baby ceramic dolls who must be cared for? Uh, It's lady doctors. Uh, That's right. Women help women, women giving medical treatment to one another. There have been so many shitty consequences to white men being the only ones with medical knowledge. Take doctors like Marion Sims, who thought nothing of torturing black women on his journey to becoming the father of modern gynecology. Also, can we just stop calling men the father of stuff? You know, it's creepy and gross and we don't need zaddies for everything. And while we're at it, can we stop naming reproductive organs after the men who supposedly discovered them? Hate it! Did you know that your fallopian tubes are named after a 16th century Italian doctor named Gabrielle Fallopio. <laughs> I wish I was making that up. Also, Gabrielle Fallopio, new drag name? New drag name. Uh, he also coined the word vagina, which he thought fit because in Latin, vagina refers to a scabbard or a sheath for a sword. No, canceled. We, we all know that's all vaginas are made for, right? Just <laughs> keeping dicks warm and protected. God. Okay, we're calling them egg tubes from now on, okay? Fallopio's canceled. <laughs> So let's, um, you know, cleanse a bit and rinse and refresh and celebrate some lady badass doctors Ooh. from history. So let's start in Italy. Home to 11th century badass midwife and the world's first gynecologist, Trotula of Salerno. Trotula was also the first woman to advocate for a less painful birth by using opioids produced by plants, which a bunch of dudes thought was heresy because women are supposed to be in massive pain during birth as punishment for Eve's original sin. Can't. It makes sense. Look, if women have to have excruciating contractions because one of us ate a healthy fruit once, then men should have to have fiery shits forever because they invented toilet golf. It's only fair 
Sorry, that's math. That's math. That's actual <laughs> equality. So it's equality math. We are writing this down. <laughs> then um, we also ha- want to celebrate Hildegard of Bingen. Uh, there was none like her. No! <laughs> I just looked at Kylie for that. Okay, she was a German nun, excuse me. Um, she was also a composer, a Christian mystic, and a medic in the 12th century. Um, so it was even more incredible that she wrote a book Whoa. Called, yeah, called Physica. Let's get Physica. Kylie's going to fire me. Um, so in this book, she describes the healing power of nature and herbs and the godly nature of such remedies. And she's also, like Trotula, um, one of the baddest bitches in yeah. Judy Chicago's um, dinner party. Uh, dinner party. Along with other feminist heroes. Um, um, permanent display at the permanent. Brooklyn Museum of Art. Come visit us. Because um, we're also there. We're There's there. also one for Kylie. Molly, <laughs> um, truly working. What on would that your design. dinner party plate look like? It would just, uh, it would have a bunch of sauces. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the one softball bat. <laughs> what was your sub? Or the mitt would be your clitoris. Oh, would the be mitt. A mitt. Yes. Would be oh, a this mitt. is so sad. Mine would be a softball mitt, and the clit would be a giant softball. <laughs> Great. With and sauces. then a bunch of sauces. All hail Molly Gaby. <laughs> what would yours be? Oh man, I don't know. Um, I don't think I love anything as much as you love sauce. I love sauce. Mine would probably be like a houseplant situation. <laughs> you, you know, know what it I mean? Uh, it'd be like a pothos in the corner and then like a, f- a palm <laughs> sticking out. Our table at the dinner party would be like the kids' table. <laughs> the you know, like the the side. <laughs> and then there's them. Oh, and the clit would be a little Yoyoi Kusama pumpkin. Oh, who's yeah. that? Oh, is that? Yeah, she's the dot lady. She does uh, oh, the infinity dot lady. Very mirrors, cute. infinity rooms, pumpkins. Um, Tweet at Brooklyn Museum. Get the kids table. Molly and Kylie, we got to be <laughs> remembered forever. Um, so uh, Hildegard, back to Hildegard. Yeah, she. Uh, uh, good, good news for her. She's been dead for a while. But in 2012, the Pope made her the official uh, doctor of the church. Yeah. Worries me a little bit. I feel like I should have a real doctor. Not a ghost doctor, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Ghost doctor. Ghost, ghost, ghost doctor. <laughs> I'd watch that sitcom. It's just right her it. haunting the Vatican, just diagnosing people walking. I would rather watch that than the new Pope. Sorry, new Pope fans. I haven't seen it. But we absolutely deserve a biopic about Rebecca Lee Crumpler. She was the first female African-American doctor in the United States. Fucking nailed that segue. Uh, <laughs> after the Civil War, she traveled down to Richmond, Virginia from Boston to provide health care to recently freed slaves. There were only 80 black doctors to serve 4 million recently freed people. That's not enough. That's wild. <laughs> uh, she eventually settled back down in Boston where she wrote the Book of Medical Discourse, which gave accessible advice on early childhood health and women's health, empowering women to take control of their own health care, especially when they didn't have access, equal access to professional medicine. That's actually incredible. It's really, she's um, rad. Google her. I think she would be happy about what's happening these days. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> right? That's my segue. Yeah. Um, so basically, you know, there didn't used to be any lady doctors. And now women make up the majority of medical students enrolled in U.S. schools uh, by 
just a slight percentage. What is it? By 0.5%. They make up 50.5% of all medical students. Uh, yeah, way to go, ladies. That's pretty rad. We nailed it. I'll take um, that. Yeah, and this is important, too, because uh, the fact that you're just a woman and a doctor actually... Saves lives. Yeah. Let me explain. So a, a study published in 2018 found that women were more likely to survive a heart attack when they were treated by a female emergency room physician than a male. Wow. Because women listen. Because we listen. To and we're tuned um, A lot of the medical establishment, of course, all the studies and research is literally based around men and men's bodies. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to have a woman to be like, oh, maybe this is a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, leave him and it's a heart attack. Mm -hmm. uh, not everyone is on board with this notion and they write articles about it in medicine journals. Oh, I'm sure I'm going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's a nice man named Brian McKinstry and he he wrote an actual article in an actual uh, medicine journal, the British one, the British Medicine Journal. Uh, and he argued that too many female graduates are bad for medicine, Kylie, uh, because apparently female doctors having just having them will lead to staffing issues because they work part time too much. <laughs> Um, and it's an economic issue. Jesus Christ. And let, we should just ban it. Because so. ladies like being at home. Yeah, we're just they chilling. Belong. we just chilling. Just vacuuming away. Mm hmm. You know. For fun. Oh, geez. Uh, and this uh, sort of bias against ladies has been in the medical industry a long time, of course. Uh, you know, from Trojula to Hildegard to the New England Women's Medical College, which was founded in the 1800s. Uh, this was the first school to educate women. Um, in the medical field and mass, uh, and it sort of brought up a lot of issues that would have uh, really stumped Brian today, <laughs> our old pal. Uh, basically, they weren't sure what to call these new lady doctors. Uh, so one of the suggestions was doctresses. Oh, interesting. Because you need a lady version of every profession: engineeresses, lawyeresses, <laughs> my favorite Supreme Court judge, Justice S. Justice S. 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 Eleanor <laughs> Kagan. <laughs> I'm learning so much. Sorry, RBG. <laughs> uh, the point is, though, women's medicine has come such a long way since Trotula's time. We now have lady doctors who understand the vast range of lady parts and who don't think that your uterus should punish you for not listening to men. Shout out to Eve. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Eve. She doesn't get enough props. First woman. <laughs> Major props. And shout out to this episode's lady of yore, a doctor who dedicated her career to debunking bullshit medical theories about ladies' bodies. She was a feminist, Victorian-era mythbuster, if you will. You'll hear her story right after the break. Woo! Guess what, everyone? The Nevertheless She Existed team is growing, and we want you to be a part of it. Come hang out with us. We're cool. We are currently hiring a community manager to support us in building a community of angry, funny, feminist history nerds who love this podcast. If you or someone you know is based in New York City and wants to be part of our team, please reach out to nsc at caveat.nyc for details. Again, that's nsc at caveat.nyc for details on the position. Welcome back. Here is the story of Clelia Duell Mosher, say that 15 times fast, as told by Sarah Hartshorn. I have been the before in a Weight Watchers commercial. That's true. Um, and you could only see my butt. Um, but this is not about me. Uh, 
Anyone else killing bees with their period blood? Anybody? Anybody? Does anyone have an alpha pussy? Could they sink mine? Because I think it's a beta and I'm late. Um, anyone? Uh, also, I'm not Catholic, but I did super want to fuck Jesus growing up. Um, yeah, that's my type is Jesus, you know, like the whole spectrum of Jesus, you know, like Catholic hot blonde with the abs. Yes, please. Okay. And then all the way to like real Jesus. You know what I mean? I mean, I say real. Um, I'm kidding. He's obviously real. I'm Jewish. We killed him. Um, and that's just science. I don't know. Um, all right. I am here to talk about uh, a woman named Clelia Dual Mosher. Dr. Clelia Dual Mosher, and I'm so proud of myself for learning how to pronounce that. Um, she was born in 1863 in Albany, and she was basically like Cosmo Magazine and Kinsey and like a health textbook that actually was useful all in one person. She was amazing. Um, she was born in 1863, and her father and all of her uncles were doctors, and she actually uh, dedicated her ultimately unfinished autobiography to him, and the dedication said, to my father, who believed in women, when most men classified them with children and imbeciles. I'm gonna tell you right now, she was a petty queen, okay? She was petty as fuck, and I love her. Um, also, I think it's really brave of her to be close to her father, even after he named her Clelia, you know? Like, that's nice. That's nice that she could forgive him for that. Um, he did believe in her. He sent her to, to the best schools he could. Um, he always stressed education. They were very, very close, but he did try to keep her from going to college, not because he's a dick, but because she was really sick, and her sister, her only sister, Esther, had just died, and so he was just afraid that she couldn't handle it and she wasn't ready. So he built her a greenhouse, and he hired a tutor to teach her um, uh, horticulture and um, some other botany. <laughs> um, some other word that I was like, I sort of know what that means. Um, bees, right? Vaginas? I don't know. Um, but so he built this whole greenhouse. He hired her tutors. And, um, you know, they lived that way for eight years, happily, or so he thought. Uh, so she graduated high school in 1881. In 1889, she revealed that she had secretly earned and saved $2,000, which is just coincidentally, the amount that it would cost for her to go to Wellesley for four years, which she had also secretly applied and gotten into. Like, she was petty, okay? That's eight years of saving and scrimping, and then just she just, like, dropped a wad of cash on her dad's desk, like, boom, I'm out. Like, that's amazing. So she went to Wellesley. She ended up transferring, um, and she graduated with a degree in zoology from Stanford. Uh, and by the time she graduated, she'd already decided that her life's work was going to be disproving a lot of the stereotypes and the harmful misinformation in the medical communities about the so-called physical inferiorities of cis women. So I'm going to go into a brief overview of some of those uh, theories and misinformation, and I'm going to get real mad when I do it. So <laughs> we, we might have to take some drinking pauses. Okay. So... <laughs> So she took, she had three myths that she wanted to tackle. Number one, doctors thought that women couldn't breathe right. <laughs> For the listeners at home, I was drinking and breathing. Um, thank you, nailed it every day, all the time, okay. Um, they thought that women couldn't breathe right. 
They were like, it's so weird. We put women in these corsets. We lace them up really, really tight. And then they only breathe from the top of their chest. Must be because they have babies. They thought that women could only breathe from the top of their chest and not from their diaphragm. Only men could breathe from their diaphragm because women had to leave room for their babies. (laughs) Whatever. So, (laughs) all right. Myth number two, women hate sex. All women hate sex. Women never like sex. If they like sex, there's something wrong with them. This is literally the same time that women are lining up around the block to get cured of their hysteria by a traveling vibrator salesman, but like, okay, women hate sex. (laughs) No, women hate sex with you. Like, I can't, whatever. (laughs) Oh, I've never had any complaints. I'm a big, loud bitch, and I've never complained. Like, I can't. I've had so much bad sex, and I said nothing. I mean, not anymore, but you know. Anyways, the point is, the third myth is that periods are so scary. Oh my gosh, so scary. Um, (laughs) Victorians believed that uh, um, menstruation caused hysteria, mental illness, and constipation. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Um, And they based all of this information on studies that male doctors did on their patients, most of whom were institutionalized. (laughs) So they were like, I don't know why all the women in this institution are so crazy. Must be their periods, for surezies. Um, They also did studies on women who were in the hospital for chronic reproductive issues. And they were like, that's so weird. All these fucked up uteruses are really fucked up. That must be true for every single woman everywhere. So... They were like, yeah, periods are super scary. Um, They called it, wait, one writer called it a constantly recurring infirmity that lasts seven years, that lasts for seven years of the average adult woman's life. I know he means seven years total, but like part of me thinks that like a woman was like, I'm still on my period, I don't wanna talk to you. (laughs) It's been five years. I'm still on my period, I don't wanna talk to you. And they thought it caused constipation. The reason they thought it caused constipation is because they would prescribe to women who had rough periods meat, bread, and opioids. (laughs) I don't know if you know what plugs you right on up, but it is meat, potatoes, and opioids, okay? So they were like, that's so weird that you're constipated. Just have some more morphine, it'll come. Anyways, all right. So those are the three myths that she set out to debunk. After she graduated, she worked as an assistant in hygiene um, at Stanford, which was a job uh, at college, because I don't really understand how college worked in the 1880s. Um, So she had to take the measurements of all incoming freshmen. You know, typical orientation stuff. Um, (laughs) Like, I, (laughs) all right, I don't understand, like, welcome to college, let's just get, I don't know. so she concluded, um, after having taken these measurements and you know, talked, she talked with years of incoming students, um, that actually women could breathe <laughs> if you took off your corset. Um, and so to honor her, I'm not wearing any Spanx. So thank you, thank you. Very brave, very, very brave. Uh, I also don't own any, so that could be why. Um, that's not true. Uh, I, I just can't find them. Um, so. She, uh, she studied over 400 women, and she concluded that women could, in fact, breathe, which is just a real fun baseline to work off of. You know what I mean? She was like, I want to prove that women are equal. And they were like, you can't breathe, dummy. <laughs> um, so she did the study. 
She published an article. It was corroborated two years later by G.W. Fitz at Harvard. Thank God, a man agreed. Um, so then it was accepted as fact. That's true. Um, so then she turned to periods. She started studying periods. She studied about 400 women. And then um, she, uh, she realized that she needed a medical degree if she was going to do this right. So she went to, um, I'm sorry, where did she go? She went to college in Baltimore. Ooh, that's right, I'm sorry. I have to switch to the notes on my phone because um, I have ADD and <laughs> I stop writing in my notebook after a certain point. Um, uh, so she realized she needed a medical degree, but she kept studying like while she was in medical school and she had studied a bunch of women before uh, she went to medical school and she just basically had a bunch of very healthy women track their periods um, over years. They kept very like meticulous monthly records. Um, and so then she graduated medical school at 35, casual, uh, and she started working for a doctor named Dr. Howard Kelly. And she was pretty sure that she got the job because of the records and the, the data that she had been collecting for years. And she was totally right. The second she started working for him, he started to bug her to give it to him. She was like, just, he was like, just give it to me and I'll use it and I'll do, the re I'll do a study about it. And she was like, Nah. <laughs> and he was like, no, 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 like, you can totally, like, he was like, you can be an assistant author on it. And she was like, nah. So uh, she wouldn't give him her data. She was super protective about it. Um, and she ended up, he, it, like, offered her a job. Um, and she turned it down, went back to California, and started a private practice. And, um, and then the funding dried up. And for 10 years, she had all this data, but no one would give her any money to like do any research or to, to um, sort of make it legitimate for 10 years. Then finally, Stanford gave her a job as, um, as a professor and again as a, um, the head of hygiene, which is still a job title that I like don't understand, but that's <laughs> what she did. Uh, and side note, I just want to take a minute to imagine what it must have been like to have a female doctor like a female gynecologist in 1881. Like, can you imagine the relief? Can you imagine being a woman in 1881? And then like you go in and you get in the stirrups and it's a woman. I would just, I would lose my mind. Like I would, they'd be like, she's hysterical. And I'd be like, no, I'm just very excited. Um, so because she was at Stanford, she was able to publish this study that showed basically that periods do not uh, make us crazy or hysterical or constipated and that if you just take off your corset, take a deep breath, you'll be fine. And she taught students to learn about their bodies, to appreciate their bodies, um, and to take off their corsets when they were on their period. Um, so then she, I'm gonna, I have way more uh, than I have time to talk about, so I'm just going to skip ahead a while. In 1917, she was 53 years old and she decided she wanted to serve in the military and she wanted to defend America in World War I. 53. And she did. <laughs> like your fave could never, like oh my God. Like she did it, so she went to France and she became uh, the head of the Bureau of Refugees and Relief and she helped evacuate refugee children out of Paris and they traveled through France to get to safety and she supervised and saved like hundreds of children. And while she did, she collect collected a bunch of data about women who were taking up hard physical labor while men were gone and when she came home, she published another survey that basically said that women were strong and could do whatever they wanted. Um, and it was amazing. She said, it looks as though we have proved that there is no inherent difference in muscular strength between men and women due to differences in sex. Another tradition destroyed and new freedom for women. 
So hell yeah. So yeah, she released that study. It was amazing. She went home. She retired. She built her dream house. She built her dream garden. She lived there till she died. It was great. <laughs> After she died, uh, they published what is now probably her most famous study that she uh, that she worked on for her whole life, starting when she was 28 until um, pretty close to when she died, and it was about women's sexuality. And basically what she discovered is that women fuck. <laughs> and sometimes enjoy it. Uh, and she discovered that uh, not only do women fuck, but women know, were, they, she discovered that women were taught nothing about their bodies, they were taught nothing about their sexuality, but the ones that were, the ones that were given any amount of information were much more likely to have orgasms because they were much more likely to know that sometimes vaginas take longer to come than penises. So she was basically Cosmo. Like she was <laughs> basically like the, one of the first advocates for uh, foreplay. Um, and so I just would really like to thank her for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I read a lot of articles about her, and I'm going to get out of here on this. I'm sorry, I've blown the light so hard. But uh, I, just, I read a lot of articles about her, and all of them spent a lot of time wondering how she became so feminist. Like, all the articles would spend a lot of time being like, I read all of her journals, and she never even said that she read a feminist text. She just read medical textbooks. Like, how did she become so feminist? Um, and I think that the answer is, is that her parents made her believe that she was worth something and they made her believe that she was strong and they raised her up. And when you show people that they are worth something, they will look for the worth in others. And when you show people that they are strong, they will strengthen other people. And when you raise a woman right, she will raise up other people. And that's what she fucking did. And thank you so much. That was Sarah Hartsorn with the story of Clelia Duell Mosher. I can say it one time fast. Um, Sarah is actually a writer with me at Abortion Access Front. She's an incredible stand-up, former plus-size model on America's Next Top Model. Wild. <laughs> I was going to say America's Got Talent. They should have more plus-size models on America's Got Talent. <laughs> uh, but you can check her out all over the city. She's an amazing stand-up. And you can follow her at Sarah Hartsorn and on Twitter. I honestly appreciate that 50% of the story is just Sarah angrily drinking. <laughs> I was sitting in the audience just like guzzling wine with her. It's just really <laughs> upsetting. Look, I spent too much money and on a full year of acting grad school learning to breathe through my diaphragm properly like a fucking pro. So suck on that, 1800s medical professionals. <laughs> I actually, I feel like, do you bring that out at parties or something? Like My diaphragm? Check it out. Honestly, it's so strong. <laughs> You have to show me. Oh my god! Thank you, Carol. Carol was our voice teacher. Stop it! We loved Carol. Shout she out to Carol once, once an episode. Voice of all time. Oh man, God. Well, I'm just gonna think about that for the yeah. <laughs> next hour. <laughs> Shout out to Carol. Um, <laughs> we have a real treat for you on the next episode, you guys. Uh, we are going to be jumping forward in time from the Victorian era to today, a time a lot better for women and reproductive rights. Right? 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 We need it to be right. We need it to be right. Um, uh, we'll find out when we chat with 
Liz motherfucking Winston. That's right. She legally changed her name a few years ago and makes me say that every time I say it. (laughs) (laughs) Liz is the founder of Abortion Access Front, Molly's boss, and a friend of the show. We are so excited to chat with her. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. See if you'll have reproductive rights by the next episode. Bye. Cliffhanger. (laughs) Hey, y'all. If you love this show and want to support us, please tell your friends. The more people who listen, the more we get to do this. And if you're near New York City at all, bring them to our live show. Nevertheless, She Existed is a production of Caveat Media. It's produced by me, Kylie Holloway, and edited by Paula Pickren. Our executive producers are Kate Downey and Ben Lilly. Head to caveat.nyc for live shows and coming soon, more podcasts. And if you like this podcast, please remember to hit that subscribe button and rate and review. Subscribe! Subscribe!